and welcome back to Cornerstone's Midweek Podcast. As we journey through the 52 major stories of the Bible, if you read the first post or listened to my first attempted uh, podcast uh, for week one and you're back, uh, thank you for continuing this adventure with us uh, through the scripture. And if it's your first time, uh, uh, man, I am thankful and humble that God has led you here uh, to study the Word, and to deepen your faith with Christ more than just on Sunday mornings. In our first story together, we looked at uh, the creation week in general uh, to see what creation teaches us about God. But this week, in our second episode, in our second week together on this adventure, we're going to see what creation teaches us about ourselves. On day six, we see that God performs two creative acts, just like He did on day three. And as we've mentioned before in week one, the days one through six correlate with one another. And so just like there was two creative acts on day three, where God called forth the land out of the water and then brought forth vegetation on the land, on day six we see two creative acts of God as well in creating the animals and then also creating people. It says, beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 24, Then God said, Let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And this is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image, or man, um, depending on what version you have, um, and uh, but let us make man in our own image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Verse 27, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth, and all the fruit and all the fruit trees for your fruit food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all that he had made. And he saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. The major theme or takeaway truth, if you will, in this chapter or in this passage is first and foremost, is that you and I are not a mistake. We have a purpose. We were created by the all-powerful creator, the God of the universe, We're not some random chance of billions of years of evolution. Cells mutating until finally we become the apex predator of this world. But no, we are created by an almighty God with infinite wisdom who created a world that would care for his creation. We are created in his image so that we can have a relationship with him and to know him and to know how to live with one another in harmony and to care for his creation. That's the biggest takeaway. 
It helps us shape our identity correctly. In fact, this is what the blog post focuses on, is what creation teaches us about our identity. And I encourage you to take a few minutes to read this week's blog about creation in us and our identity in Christ and how creation shapes a good and healthy and right perspective of our identity and us defining who we are. And you can find that blog at cornerstonego.com under resources and selecting the pastor's blog, or you can find it on morethansundaymornings.com. But just kind of how blogs and podcasts are playing out, they seem to each focus on something different about the passage. So if you're interested in how creation helps us shape our God-given identity, check out the blog. And as we continue on in this podcast episode, we'll focus on something more theological, and that is the person of God and what he is like. I want to draw your attention now to the creation of mankind. In verse 26, then God said, and the word God there is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's the plural word for God in the Hebrew. And yet we see the verbs that follow uh, singular. Uh, same thing in Genesis 1, 1, uh, God created. We see the word Elohim, uh, that there is a singular aspect about God and his nature, but there's also something pluralistic about God and his nature. So from the very beginning, as God begins to reveal himself, he reveals himself as one, yet one with something plural about his nature. And as he progressively reveals himself throughout Scripture, we see this as God being triune, that he is one in what he is, in his essence, but he is three in who he is. And we have God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each fully God, though distinct from one another. And again, we see this being established and revealed, though not all at once, which is on purpose, as not to overwhelm a Hebrew people that he is calling out to himself and for himself, which are coming out of pluralistic religions and backgrounds and culture. And so we see from the very beginning, though, that God is revealing himself in as much as people can handle and on his time frame, which is perfect in his all-knowing wisdom and plan. In verse 26, then God said, let us. And so again, we see something of God's nature, the, the pluralistic part of God's nature. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. And again, this is an essence of what we call the Trinity. And you'll look throughout the pages of Scripture and you will not find the word Trinity. Uh, Trinity is from a Latin word meaning threeness. And so we describe God as a triune God, one in who he is, or what he is, and three in who he is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each fully God. So whatever can be said of God the Father can be said of God the Son and the Holy Spirit. But we see that the triune God is active in the creation of human beings. In Genesis chapter 2, we see how the Godhead creates humans, both man and woman. Man from the dust of the ground, and woman 
from Adam's rib. We see kind of just the zooming in and specificity of God's creating people. In Genesis chapter 2, we just see an overall statement of truth here in Genesis chapter 1 that human beings are created in God's image. In verse 27, we see that God created human beings in his own image. Again, the plural Elohim, their God. Uh, then the singular in his own image. Again, the sing- singular, 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 oh my goodness, gracious. If y'all know me, and if you uh, call Cornerstone home, you know I stumble over words sometime, uh, most of the time, probably about every week. And that is just one of the things that I think God has really put in my life to keep me humble. But anyways, we see here in verse 27 that there's something that is singular about God's nature and something plural about God's nature, as we've already stated. And then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and govern it. And so we see that we are created in the image of God, and we are created with purpose of knowing Him, but also overseeing His creation. As we look at the the triune God uh, in creation, we see each member of the Trinity active in creation. It seems as we look at the whole scope of Scripture, and we turn our attentions to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, and our attention to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we see that Jesus is the one who created everything, the things that we see and the things that we don't see. It looks as if in Genesis chapter 1, we see the Father being the one who uh, comes up with the idea or initiates the idea of creation and puts creation in motion by speaking the words, let there be. And as the Father spoke the words, let there be, we see Jesus Christ go to work on creating uh, what God has spoken into existence. Then we see in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, that the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so we have the Holy Spirit here uh, that is hovering over the surface of the deep, and we see His role as the one who is completing the work of the Son and bringing life to the work that He has created. So we see the Father speak creation, or the act of creation, We see the Son act on the words of the Father, and we see the Holy Spirit bring life and beautification to the Son's work. We have the triune God at work in creation. It's a great mystery, though God has revealed Himself in this way in His Word to us throughout the pages of Scripture. So as we're made in the image of the triune God, it gives us a baseline in which to value human life. It's because all of us, myself and you, your neighbor, your coworker that gets on your nerves, the person who was once your friend who betrayed you, the estranged son or daughter, uh, we could go on and on and on. But every person that we see and come in contact with that we know or don't know is created in the image of God. And because they're created in the image of the triune God, they are valuable. In fact, they are so valuable that after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, we see God tell Moses that if anybody is to take a human life, their life is to be taken as well for that crime because they took a life made in the image of God. We see that people are valuable. It gives us 
perspective on the value of the unborn and in their mother's wombs, that that is a life, a person made in the image of God, and therefore their life is valuable. It brings us to the topic of racism, in which there is no biblical foundation for there to be any superiority of one group of people over another because of the level of melanin that is in their skin. But instead, whether we're African-American, whether we're white, whether we're Hispanic, no matter the color of our skin or our heritage, our nationality, our social economic level, whether we live in a mansion or whether we live on the street, all life has equal value. It's not based on accomplishments. It's not based on finances. It's not based on family status, the car we drive, the cars, the clothes that we wear, how we look, and our accomplishments. But no, we are all equal value because we are made in the image of God. Therefore, we ought to love people no matter who they are or what they look like. We should value them because they are made in the very image of God. And that's where they find their dignity. That's where we find our dignity for all of our lives. While in the womb and toward the end of life, that life is valuable. And so application number one is we measure value as Christians of other people because they're made in the image of God. And because of that, we value them. We love them. We sacrifice for them. And then secondly, because we're made in the image of God, we, unlike any of the rest of his creation, are able to relate to him, but are also able to reflect him. To reflect him to the created world, thus the reason for the mandate to rule over the earth, to govern it, to be good stewards of it, that we are to be his image, to care for the creation like little Christ, so that creation can see uh, the image of their creator in his people. We are to be able to reflect his character and his his nature to other people, both believers and non-believers alike, that we should be his image of love and grace and mercy. We should be his image of what is right and what is wrong based upon his written word. And so we should be able to reflect that to one another and the way we treat one another, the way that we handle difficulties and conflict in our relationships, how we do business with one another. So we are created in the image of God to reflect his image to the created world and those around us. But there's a problem, and that problem appears in Genesis chapter 3, and it's one that we know pretty well, is that because sin entered into the world, this image of God is a little marred. Kind of like going into a funhouse. And you see all these mirrors, and they kind of distort your image. You see something that kind of looks like you, but maybe the mirror that you're looking in makes you a whole lot shorter and a whole lot wider or a whole lot taller and a whole lot skinnier. Maybe it does a little bit of both, or it makes you appear wavy instead of straight. And your image is distorted as 
you see the mirror reflecting it back to you. And because of sin, the image of God in us is not wiped away. Uh, We still have his image in us, but it's distorted a lot of times because of our sin nature and our willingness to act on our tendency towards sin. But again, the redeeming aspect of God is this, is that we have the ability to become more and more like Him. Again, this is unique to human beings as people, as creatures created in the image of God. And so we have the ability as we partner with the Holy Spirit in obedience to God's Word and the Holy Spirit's leading to become more and more like Jesus so that we can reflect His nature, God's character, to the rest of the world around us, either created or to other individuals. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we see these words of Paul to the Corinthian believers. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. For those of us who have seen Christ, who have experienced relationship with God by turning from our sin, turning to Christ in repentance and in belief, and now are doing life with Him in relationship with Him, we can see and behold God's glory. We see it in the pages of Scripture. We see it within the testimony of His Spirit within us. And it says, and in the person of Jesus Christ, Paul goes on to say, And the Lord who is spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. There's a story by Ernest Hemingway. And in this story, I think the story is called The Great Stone Face. And it takes us to the setting of this story. And it's a small village. And inside of the village is this great face of a mountain. And appearing on this face of the mountain is what looks to be like a face of a man. So if you were to look at the mountain a certain way, you would see the side of the man's face or a man's face. And there was a prophecy within this village that one day there'd be a great prophet that looked like the face on the side of the mountain. And it'd be a blessing to the village. As the story progresses, Hemingway talks of a couple of men who move out of the village to return later successful and accomplished, in which both began to proclaim that they were the great prophet, that they were the fulfillment of the prophecy of the great stone face. Yet there's another character in the story that's in the background and quiet for a good part of the narrative. And When both of these men stand up at separate times to claim to be this great prophet, the man of the shadows, so to speak, points the village back to the prophecy, which says that the prophet that will raise up will be from the village. He points out that both of these men left the village and have since returned, and that's not part of the prophecy. Time continues to pass in the story, and it's not long when the people of the village begin to realize that this soft-spoken man, this man in the background of the story, is the prophet. They begin to see the resemblance of this man in the face 
on the mountain. And little by little, we see this man resemble the characteristics more and more of the face in the mountain. And what is interesting is that this man had a a habit, a discipline, if you will. And he would spend time going out and just beholding the stone face in the mountain. He would study the great stone face. And over time, it looked like he was being taught by this great stone face. And as he was taught by the stone face, he become more like the stone face. He looked more and more like its image. And the town recognized him as the fulfillment of this prophecy. The great prophet who would grow up in the village, who would resemble the great stone face. I think there's a lesson from this story, and that is that we become what we behold. In other words, as people made in the image of God, having the capability to look more like Christ, as His Holy Spirit works in us and as we yield to His leading through His guidance and through conviction brought on by the Word of God, we become more and more like Christ. But it takes us beholding Christ. It takes us being around His people. It takes us being in His house. It takes us being in His Word. And it takes us spending time in communion with Him in prayer. And as we do, the distorted image of God in us, caused by the fall, becomes less and less clownish. It becomes less and less marred. And soon we become able to reflect more and more accurately Christ, the image of God, in us, not only to His created world, but to His other children and to the world at large. Creation and us. It's a great thing. And eventually, we'll become just like Christ. In John, 1 John chapter 1, verses, uh, yeah, no, not chapter 1, but 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, John in his old age writes to the church. And in verse 2, he says, Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. This is the whole goal of Christ, of God saving us, is so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And there's coming a day that when we are with him, or when he comes back for us as his church, that we will be like Him, that He will transform us, and we will be like Him. The question is, do we want that to be a jolt, or do we want to save uh, God as much work as possible when that time comes? My prayer and my desire uh, for myself and for you as well is that we would be pursuing Christ, that we would be beholding Him so that His Holy Spirit could help us become more like Christ a little bit at a time, so that when our time does come to be with Him, there'll be as little work as possible on our end for God to do to make us more like His Son. Well, thank you again for joining me in this journey through the Bible as we look at the 52 pivotal stories of God's Word that tie the whole story of His love letter to us together. Until next time.